welcome back to Weird on the Rocks. This is a podcast that explores the weird, unusual, strange, and unexplained, all while getting our drink on. I'm your host, Katie. Today's episode is the second episode in our three-part Zodiac Killer series, and we're going to be picking up right where episode one left off. Episode one covered the murders of Sherry Jo Bates, Betty Lou Jensen, David Faraday, and Darlene Farron, as well as the first two letters the Zodiac sent to the press, including the letter where the killer referred to himself as the Zodiac for the very first time. Today, I will be continuing with the discussion of the rest of the Zodiac victims and his correspondence with the media. Before we get going, I want to read another quick iTunes review. This one is from Alfonso Leonardo, and it says, Enjoy listening to each episode. I love the way each episode is very different. Thank you. I really appreciate the feedback, and I'm glad you're enjoying the different topics. That's kind of what I'm going for, so I'm glad you appreciate that. If you want to support the show, please subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast right now and rate and review on iTunes. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook. Both are at Weird on the Rocks Podcast and also at www.weirdontherocks.weebly.com. On that website, I have an embedded player where you can listen to all the episodes. I have buttons where you can subscribe, links to my Facebook and Instagram. I have a monthly survey on there, and I also have a page for each individual episode where I post my photos and what I'm drinking that day. So go check it out if you haven't done that yet. All right, before we get into all the good stuff today, I want to share this week's beverage of choice. Tonight, I'm drinking a root beer rum cream. And let me tell you, it is just as delicious as it sounds. This drink has dark spiced rum. I'm using the Kraken rum. And it also has root beer and Bailey's Irish cream. Um, This drink is dangerous. I could probably have at least um, 20 of these, but for your sake, I'll I'll keep it to one tonight. (laughs) Along with my drink, I am also enjoying a really delicious chocolate chip cookie from my friend Olivia at North Coast Confections. Go check her out on Instagram at North Coast Confections. She makes lots of really delicious and super cute treats. If you're looking for something for a holiday party, a baby shower, a wedding, whatever, she's your girl to go to. Her stuff is adorable and also tastes great. So thank you so much for the cookie. It goes great with my super sugary drink. This is definitely not healthy for me, but hey, I'm doing it for the podcast sake, right? All right, well, let's get into it. Cheers, and let's get weird. On September 27, 1969, three young women were planning on spending the warm and clear fall day sunbathing on the shore of Lake Berryessa in Napa County, California. When they pulled into the parking area, another car pulled in extremely close to them and parked. The man inside the car looked down as if he was reading something, but they all had the feeling he wasn't. He was driving a light blue 66 Chevrolet with California plates. They described the man as 25 to 35 years old, over six feet tall, weighing about 215 pounds. He wore no glasses with straight hair parted on the side. He was good looking and clean cut. 
After a few minutes, the man drove away, and the girls walked down to the shore. It was a calm and quiet day, and with the busy season being over, there weren't many other people around or boats on the lake. After about an hour of sunbathing, one of the girls looked up the hillside and saw the same man watching them. He stared intently while smoking several cigarettes in a row, then left. A few hours later, not far from where the girls had been sunbathing, Cecilia Shepard and Brian Hartnell, both college students, were having a picnic, spending time together before Cecilia moved to Southern California for college. They were laying on a blanket, taking in the last sunrays of the day, when Cecilia noticed a man standing in the distance, watching them. Cecilia mentioned to Brian that they had company, but Brian dismissed it, reassuring Cecilia that other people were allowed to be at the lake. Then, the man disappeared into some trees, and a relieved Cecilia said that he was gone. A minute or so later, the man reemerged, but this time he was much closer and was walking toward them. Cecilia was worried and said, It's that man again. Oh my God, he has a gun. As the stranger came closer, they could see that he was wearing dark pants, a dark shirt, and had on a dark hood that resembled an executioner from the Middle Ages. The hood had a crosshair symbol sewn on the front with a mouth and eye holes cut out. He was wearing sunglasses and a belt equipped with a long knife. In his right hand, he held a semi-automatic pistol. In a voice that Brian Hartnell would later describe as very calm and monotone, but with a slight drawl or accent, he said, I want your money and your car keys. I want to go to Mexico. Brian handed over the keys to his Volkswagen and the change in his pocket. Brian thought it was only a robbery and wanted it to go over as smoothly as possible. He said, there's no strings attached. I don't have any money right now, but if you need help that badly, I can help you out in another way, maybe. No, the stranger replied. Time's running short. I'm an escaped convict from Deer Lodge, Montana. I've killed a prison guard there. I have a stolen car and nothing to lose. I'm flat broke. Brian tried to talk to the stranger and thought maybe some casual conversation would calm him down. I talked all kinds of weird stuff, Brian would later say. Just weird shit. I was taking a sociology class at the time. I had never run into a real-life criminal. This guy just wanted my money, and he was nothing to worry about. After talking for a while, the hooded man told Brian, Lie face down on the ground. I'm going to tie you up. Brian later states, I remember feeling really annoyed at the thought of being hogtied. Just really annoyed. And I argued with him about it, and thought about trying to get the gun away. The stranger turned towards Cecilia and said, You tie the boy up, and handed her some clothesline from his belt. Cecilia loosely tied together Brian's hands, and when she finished, the man tied her up. The man then inspected Brian's loosely tied hands and tightened them more. Cecilia was now lying on her stomach on the blanket, and Brian was lying on his left side. Brian says, In retrospect, why would anyone tie you up after they had robbed you or found out you didn't have any money? Why didn't he have me walk a hundred yards down the way and say, don't turn around? It didn't make sense to hogtie me. Then I asked him, okay, now that this is all over with, will you show me if the gun was actually loaded? He popped open the end of the gun and he pulled out the cartridges and showed me a bullet. It looked like a forty-five caliber. Brian noticed that the man's hands were shaking and he appeared to be getting nervous. The man then said, I'm going to have to stab you people. Brian told the attacker, please stab me first. I'm chicken. I can't stand to see her stabbed. I'll do just that said the man as he pulled the foot-long knife from his belt and began stabbing Brian in the back while Cecilia watched and screamed in horror. Brian says, I'm laying on my stomach. Put yourself in my shoes. Someone hits you in the back. What's the first thing you do? You stiffen. You just wait for it to stop. The man, now on his knees and breathing heavily, moves the blade to Cecilia. He stabs her ten times in the back. Then she rolls onto her back and he continues to stab her in the chest, groin, and abdomen. Cecilia is screaming, stop, stop, while kicking and jerking violently. Brian turned his head away. 
the man eventually stood up, tossed the money and keys back onto the blanket, and walked away. Brian lay playing dead on the blanket, the knife blade missing his heart by less than an inch. Cecilia regained consciousness, and the two began yelling as they worked at getting themselves untied. A man and his son, fishing on the lake, heard their cries for help and rode to a resort two miles away where they told rangers about what they had heard. Multiple rangers and officers were dispatched by boat and patrol car. Ranger Sergeant William White was first on the scene. They were suffering so terribly, he says. The girl, she kept pleading with me to give her something to kill the pain or knock her out. She was writhing on the ground in agony and I could barely feel her pulse. I remembered something I'd heard long ago about scratching somewhere away from the pain that would help to take her mind off of it. So I told the girl about that. She tried it and told me it helped for a few minutes, but then she started begging me again to put her out of her misery. Cecilia Shepard had been stabbed 24 times. Brian and Cecilia were rushed to the hospital where she was taken into emergency surgery, but two days later, she died in the hospital. The news of the attack had been logged by the Napa Sheriff's Office at 7.13 p.m. At 7.40 p.m., the office received a call, and Officer Slate answered. A man was on the other end. I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Where are you? asked Officer Slate. I'm the one that did it, said the voice before hanging up. The call was traced to a payphone located at 1231 Main Street, which was the Napa Car Wash. Detective Sergeant Kenneth Narlow of Napa County Sheriff's Office took charge of the investigation. Once he closed off the lakeside area where the attack happened and canvassed the area for witnesses, he went to look at Brian Hartnell's white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, the car that the hooded man supposedly needed for his getaway, but left in the parking lot. On the door of the car, in a black felt-tip pen, was written, Vallejo, 12 7469 September, 2769, 6.30 p.m., by knife. Narlow immediately recognized these dates as the murders of David Faraday, Betty Lou Jensen, and Darlene Farron. Eleven days later, in San Francisco, 28-year-old Paul Stein was driving his taxi cab in the city. He worked as a taxi driver on the weekend to help pay for graduate school, which he was close to graduating from. That night, he picked up a fare on Geary and Mason in Union Square and headed for the Presidio, a very nice, wealthy neighborhood. The address Stein had written in his log was the corner of Washington and Maple Streets. For an unknown reason, Stein drove a block past that address to the corner of Washington and Cherry. At 9.58 p.m., the San Francisco Police Department received a phone call from three teenagers who lived at 3899 Washington Street, saying they had heard a loud noise so they looked out their window and witnessed a man wiping down a taxi with a cloth, then taking the wallet and keys from a person in the cab who looked deceased. They said the suspect then walked away. The teenagers described the man as Caucasian and heavy set with a slight limp. However, somehow the description of the suspect got miscommunicated, and police were told to search for a black male. When officers Donald Fuchs and Eric Zelms saw a large white man walking down the street, they did not stop him and continued looking for their suspect but no one was found. Paul Stein's murder was not immediately connected to the Zodiac killings, and authorities considered it a routine robbery gone wrong. But two days later, the San Francisco Chronicle received another letter from the supposed Zodiac killer. It read, This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The San Francisco police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. 
I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning, just shoot out the front tire, then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. Included in the letter was a bloody, torn piece of Paul Stein's shirt. Until the murder of Paul Stein, authorities had discovered patterns in the Zodiac's killings. He always attacked in the evening or night, on weekends, always attacked young couples in or near their vehicles, and always attacked in remote areas near bodies of water. But the attack on Paul Stein was all different. If he was able to break his own patterns, was he actually capable of pulling off an attack on young school children? The city of San Francisco went into panic. Bus drivers quit their jobs, parents kept their children home from school, and the remaining bus drivers were given specific instructions on what to do if such an attack did occur. Almost a month after the death of Paul Stein, the Chronicle received yet another letter with the words Rush to the Editor written on the front. This contained another bloody piece of Paul Stein's shirt, another cipher, and a greeting card with a picture of a pen dripping ink the color of blood that said, Sorry I haven't written, but I just washed my pen. The letter inside said, This is a Zodiac speaking. I thought you would need a good laugh before you got the bad news. P.S. Could you print the new cipher on your front page? I get awfully lonely when I am ignored. So lonely, I could do my thing. On the bottom of the letter, it said, July, August, September, October equals seven, which appeared to be a body count, although there were only five confirmed deaths at this time. One day later, on October 9th, the Chronicle received another letter from the Zodiac, this time with a hand-drawn diagram of a homemade bomb that he had designed to blow up the buses. Along with the drawing was another letter. This is a Zodiac speaking. Up to the end of October, I have killed seven people. I have grown rather angry with the police for their telling lies about me. So I shall change the way I collect slaves. I shall no longer announce to anyone. When I commit my murders, they shall look like routine robberies, killings of anger, and a few fake accidents, etc. The police shall never catch me because I have been too clever for them. One, I look like the description passed out only when I do my thing and the rest of the time I look entirely different. Two, as of yet, I have left no fingerprints behind me, contrary to what the police say. In my killings, I wear transparent fingertip guards. All it is is two coats of airplane cement coated on my fingers, quite unnoticeable and very effective. Three, my killing tools have been bought in through the mail, except one, and it was bought out of state. So as you can see, the police don't have much to work on. If you wonder why I was wiping the cab down, I was leaving fake clues for the police to run all over town with. As one might say, I gave the cops some busy work to do to keep them happy. I enjoy needling the blue pigs. Hey, blue pig, I was in the park. You were using fire trucks to mask the sound of your cruising prowl cars. The dogs never came within two blocks of me. and They were to the west. There was only two groups of parking about ten minutes apart from the motorcycles when went by at 150 feet away, going from south to north-west. P.S. Two cops pulled a goof about three minutes after I left the cab. I was walking down the hill to the park when this cop car pulled up, and one of them called me over and asked if I saw anyone acting suspicious or strange in the last five to ten minutes. And I said yes. There was this man who was running by waving a gun, and the cops peeled rubber and went around the corner as I directed them. Then I disappeared into the park, a block and a half away, never to be seen again. Hey pig, doesn't it rile you up to have your nose rubbed in your boo-boos? The death machine is already made. I would have sent you pictures, but you would be nasty enough to trace them back to the developer, then to me, so I shall describe my masterpiece to you. The nice part of it is all the parts can be bought on the open market with no questions asked. One battery-powered clock will run for approximately one year. One photoelectric switch. Two copper leaf springs. 
two six-volt car batteries, one flashlight bulb and reflector, one mirror, two 18-inch cardboard tubes black with shoe polish inside and out. The system checks out from one end to the other in all my tests. What you do not know is whether the death machine is at the site or whether it is being stored in my basement for future use. I think you do not have the manpower to stop this one by continually searching the roadsides looking for this thing. Have fun. By the way, it would be rather messy if you try to bluff me. Two weeks later, on the night of October 22nd, the Oakland Police Department received a call from a man claiming to be the Zodiac. He told police he wanted the famous Boston attorney F. Lee Bailey to appear on a public talk show, but that he would settle for famed San Francisco attorney Melvin Belli, who was best known for representing Jack Ruby, the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Melvin Belli approved, and just hours later, he appeared on a live talk show hosted by Jim Dunbar. Belli and Dunbar waited live on the air, telling the Zodiac to call if he wished to talk. Eventually, a call came through from the supposed Zodiac killer. He identified himself as Sam. Sam and Melvin Belli talked for several minutes live on the air. The man calling himself Sam said he was experiencing headaches. Belli asked if medication helps with the pain, and Sam said no. Sam expressed that he didn't want to be hurt, and that is why he called the show. As the conversation continued, the man became increasingly more upset and hostile, eventually threatening that he was going to kill all those kids. Sam hung up and called back several times, most likely trying to make it difficult for law officials to trace the call. Brian Hartnell, who survived the Zodiac attack at Lake Berryessa, listened to the tape and said the voice didn't match the voice of the man who attacked him and killed Cecilia Shepard, and that it was an imposter. Belli then used the San Francisco Chronicle to reach out to the Zodiac and told him he would be willing to meet him alone. The Zodiac responded with a place and time, the St. Vincent de Paul in Daly City. But when Melvin Belli went, the Zodiac never showed up. Eventually, the police were able to use information from the call to trace it, and it led them to a man in a mental hospital whom they concluded had nothing to do with the Zodiac. Early in the evening of March 22, 1970, 23-year-old Kathleen Johns, who was seven months pregnant, was driving in her station wagon with her infant daughter Jennifer in Modesto, California, on Highway 132. A man driving behind Kathleen began honking his horn and signaling for her to pull over. When she pulled over to the side of the road, the man got out of his vehicle and explained that one of her rear tires was wobbly and offered to tighten it for her. Kathleen agreed, but instead of tightening the lug nuts, the man loosened them, and before Kathleen could get far, her rear wheel fell completely off. She pulled over to the side again, and again the man pulled up behind her. He said something to her in the effect of, It looks like the problem was worse than I thought. Can I drive you to a service station? Kathleen was alone on the side of the road with her small baby, so she agreed. The man began to drive Kathleen and Jennifer through the town of Tracy, passing multiple service stations, each time Kathleen asking, What's wrong with that station? To which the man would reply, It's not the right one. Kathleen asked the stranger, Do you always go around helping people like this? And the man replied, By the time I get through with them, they won't need any help. When the man came to a stop at a light, Kathleen made the decision to escape, and jumped out of the vehicle holding her daughter, then ran through a field and up an embankment where she hid in the shadows. The man turned off his lights, pulled over to the side of the road, and waited in his car for a few minutes before eventually driving away. After a while, Kathleen walked to the road and flagged down a passerby who took her to the local police station in Patterson, California. While she was being interviewed, she looked up and saw the composite sketch of the Zodiac hanging on the wall and told the officer, It was that man. Police went to the location where Kathleen had left her station wagon 
in hopes of returning it to her, but instead found the car torched. This encounter would be the last time anyone would knowingly interact with the Zodiac Killer. Over the next few months, the San Francisco Chronicle received five letters from the alleged Zodiac. In a letter from April 20th, he detailed a new bus bomb diagram, and when the Chronicle didn't print it, he sent another letter on April 28th saying, If you don't want me to have this blast, you must do two things. One, tell everyone about the bus bomb with all the details. Two, I would like to see some nice Zodiac buttons wandering around town. Everyone else has these buttons, like peace symbol, black power, etc. Well, it would cheer me up considerably if I saw a lot of people wearing my button. The next letter was sent on June 26th, which included a map of the Bay Area with his signature Zodiac logo of the crosshairs drawn on top of Mount Diablo. But when officials did a search of the area, nothing was found. The letter read, This is the Zodiac speaking. I have become very angry with the people of the San Francisco Bay Area. They have not complied with my wishes for them to wear nice cross-circle buttons. I promised to punish them if they did not comply by annihilating a full school bus. But now school is out for summer, so I punished them in another way. I shot a man sitting in a parked car with a thirty-eight. However, law officials believe this claim to be false, because the only recent murder with a thirty-eight caliber was that of a police officer, where several eyewitnesses identified a black man with no similarities to the Zodiac. On October 27th, Paul Avery, a San Francisco Chronicle reporter, received a Halloween card from the Zodiac. The greeting card showed a cartoon of a skeleton with the words, by fire, by gun, by knife, by rope, and claimed that his victim count was now at 13. On Halloween day, the Chronicle printed the Halloween card, thinking that if they didn't, the Zodiac might attack Paul Avery next. The next day, the Chronicle received a letter from the Riverside Police urging them to investigate the murder of Sherry Jo Bates from 1966 to see if there were any connections to the Zodiac. At this time, it was very rare for police departments to share information from different jurisdictions, so a connection between Zodiac and the murder of Sherry Jo Bates had never been formed until now. Handwriting analysis was done between the letter Riverside Police received after the Bates murder with the letters from the Zodiac to the Chronicle and it was determined the two were a match. Five months passed before the next letter was sent. This time, it arrived at the Los Angeles Times for the first time. In it, the Zodiac said, I do have to give them credit for stumbling across my Riverside activity, but they are only finding the easy ones. There are a hell of a lot more down there. And the number 17 was written on the bottom. However, to this day, there are still many who believe the murder of Sherry Jo Bates was not that of the Zodiac, and he only took credit for it once the police made the information public. On March 22, 1971, the Chronicle received a postcard, yet again addressed to reporter Paul Avery. The postcard advertised a new condominium project being built in Lake Tahoe, with the words, Sought Victim 12, and Peek Through the Pines, written on top. Many believe that this was the Zodiac taking responsibility for the disappearance of a 25-year-old woman named Donna Lass from South Lake Tahoe that previous May. After this postcard, the Zodiac was quiet for three years. Three years later, on January 29, 1974, the Chronicle received a letter with the recognizable handwriting of the Zodiac. In it, he said that he had recently seen the movie The Exorcist and referred to it as the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen. The very last letter verified to be written from the Zodiac was postmarked in San Rafael and was received on July 8, 1974. In it, the Zodiac verbally attacked a conservative Chronicle columnist named Marco Spinelli, saying, Put Marco back in the hellhole whence it came. He has a serious psychological disorder. 
It was signed, The Red Phantom. This was the last confirmed letter sent from the Zodiac. Over the years, numerous Zodiac letters were received that were determined to be fake, including one that was sent to the Chronicle in 1990 and was postmarked from where I live in Eureka, California. In the end, the Zodiac Killer could definitively be linked to the murder of five victims. David Faraday, Betty Lou Jensen, Darlene Farron, Cecilia Shepard, and Paul Stein. All right, that's going to be it for episode two of our three-part Zodiac series. I know it's a lot of information to unpack, and it's quite heavy, but I hope I was able to condense the information and all the research into something that is easy to follow and easy to understand for you guys. Please join me in two weeks for the third and final part of the series where I will be discussing the different Zodiac suspects that have been considered over the years. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Once again, you can reach me on Instagram and Facebook at Weird on the Rocks Podcast and at www.weirdontherocks.weebly.com. Until next time, cheers and stay weird. 